This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Political Science, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Lemis Abdelati from the Maxwell School of Syracuse University. Today, I'll be talking to Jason Lyle about his book, Divided Armies, Inequality and Battlefield Performance in Modern War, which was published by Princeton University Press in 2020. This award-winning book argues that the fate of armies on the battlefield is sealed long before the first battle. Jay, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. It's delighted to be here. Fantastic. I wonder if you could begin the interview by just telling us a little bit about yourself. Sure. I can give you the 30-second the spiel very quickly. Uh, I am currently the James Wright Chair of Transnational Studies at Dartmouth College, uh, where I also direct the Political Violence Field Lab, which brings undergraduates into the study of um, political violence. And I've been here uh, for a couple of years now, and I work more broadly on questions of political violence and how to mitigate some of the effects of political violence in settings like Afghanistan and Iraq and Syria. Wonderful. Well, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Um, So I wanted to ask you how you came to write this book, Divided Armies. Yeah, well, like most of the things I do is by accident. Um, I know we're supposed to have a a sort of plan that we tell everybody that it was clearly mapped out and I had all these sort of logical steps, but I, I really stumbled in to the argument and into the book um, from my first experience in Afghanistan, actually. I uh, was there in 2009 for my first trip. And just by luck, I found myself living at an American military base just south of Kabul called Camp Julian. And uh, it was co-located with an Afghan battalion at Kandak that was being stood up. And this was going to be the American exit strategy out of Afghanistan. They were going to create this new army and, uh, and then sort of be able to withdraw. And, you know, I was at headquarters for a while doing research there, and you could hear everyone talking about how the Afghan military was a school of the nation and that it was going to, you know, everyone was going to come in. There was going to transcend tribe and ethnic affiliation. You're going to create new Afghans in this sort of school of the nation. And, and Camp Julian was that school, one of them. And I would go home at night to live on the base or do my runs through the Afghan side of the base. And you saw anything but a school of the nation. You saw uh, riots. There were fights. Um, there was sexual violence in the barracks. Uh, there was corruption like you wouldn't believe. Uh, and it was broken down along tribal and often ethnic lines as well. And so, you know, on one hand, I heard the, the official pronouncements that progress was being made. On the other hand, I saw what was really happening in the, in the so-called School of the Nation. And it sort of got me thinking, like, what do we know about diversity, inequality, and how that affects battlefield performance? And so when I left, it was, it was a short trip. It was only a couple months. Uh, I came back and I started looking through our 
literature. You know, what do we know about diversity? What do we know about inequality, particularly in security studies? Uh, and we didn't know much. And in fact, there, there wasn't much in the literature. And in, in fact, I didn't really have the language of inequality or diversity yet. I just knew there was something about identity, something about how these cleavages were forming in the army and how that affected uh, battlefield performance. So I really just was, went on an intuition. Uh, rather than any kind of sort of hole in the literature, I just came back and couldn't find anything uh, to, to you know that was had, was working on that topic. And so it's odd now in some ways because diversity and equality is is sort of buzzwords now that we use all the time. It's become actually deeply polarized and, and politicized in, in some ways right now. But ten years ago when I started, there was almost nothing. And so the book was really an attempt to try and make a first step at thinking through what is inequality, what does it look like in an army, and and why should we care about it? Wonderful. Well, I'm really glad that uh, it ultimately led to this fantastic book. Um, so let me um, kind of start by asking you about the concept of battlefield performance, right? This is, of course, you know, the thing that you're interested in explaining. The question is, why is it that armies fare differently on the battlefield? So can you tell us how you conceptualize battlefield performance? Yeah, yeah, great. And so this is one of the places where I tried to make a conceptual contribution, if you will. So much of the literature on military effectiveness looks at armies in terms of their killing ability, essentially the relative killing ability or what we call the loss exchange ratio. And and that's important. We want to know how many soldiers die on, on one side versus the other. And, and that matters for um, for military effectiveness, but it's not the only measure. And in fact, historically, armies have done lots of interesting things on the battlefield for which we have no data and no real theorizing. So when I talk about battlefield performance, it's partly about the coercive capacity of the army, right? How much punishment can it inflict on the other side and, and how much can it safeguard its own soldiers? But we also care about things like how much does your army desert? How much does it fe- defect, right? How many of your soldiers actually pick up and can join the other side and fight against you, which actually happens a lot historically. Um, how much do you need to use violence against your own soldiers to force them to fight? So when I take um, battlefield performance, it's a sort of composite of cohesion, things like desertion and defection and use of violence against your own soldiers, and sort of combat capability or killing capacity, which is these loss exchange ratios. And, you know, so there's some literature on loss exchange ratio, there's sort of the dominant measure. There's a little bit of literature now started coming on desertion, but I felt that the two schools weren't really talking to each other. So I put them together into one kind of composite index so that you could look at an army and see how it was performing on the battlefield in terms of both killing capacity and in terms of its cohesion, how it held itself together. Excellent. So the book um, contends that military inequality determines battlefield performance. And again, you sort of describe battlefield performance as sort of this combination of cohesion and combat power, right? Um, So before we get into the details of the book's argument, can you first explain what you mean by military inequality? Yeah, great. So this is the engine that drives the car in the book. This is really the the central kind of concept that I I think I'm bringing to the table. Uh, Inequality, military inequality here really refers to two things, right? One, it's the ethnic composition of your military right before it goes to war. So you want to sort of lift the lid on it and look inside and see what is the ethnic and racial composition of that army. And the second component, and this is where the inequality, this is sort of the ethnic part, but the inequality part comes in by looking at how the state is treating each of those groups. So we want to know, 
is that ethnic group seen as a full-fledged citizen of that particular political community? It's a, it's a member. It's fully included. Is that ethnic group being marginalized or discriminated against by the state? And then finally, is it being violently repressed by the state? And so the inequality index here, think of it like a Gini coefficient. If, you're, if economists are listening, they'll pick this up quickly. It's a Gini uh, coefficient for, of inequality inside your military. So looking at um, how the various groups are being treated and then the demographic weight within the army. And the idea here is it really creates an index from zero to one. As you move towards one, your army is becoming more uh, unequal. That means more of it is uh, represented by groups that are being discriminated against or violently repressed by the state. And there's just a basic understanding here is as you move towards one, so as you get more repressive towards those ethnic groups, as it becomes more unequal in its treatment of the groups within the army, more bad things are going to start happening to your military. Your battlefield performance is going to go down. Uh, and so it's really a story about how the state is treating each ethnic group in the army on the eve of war. And so it's really kind of this inequality is baked into your military prior to going into battle. So it's not something that sort of arises on the battlefield. It's already there. Now, it may be exposed on the battlefield and the adversary can exploit these, these inequalities in his propaganda or other things. But it's really your, your fate is in a lot of ways hardwired into your military before you get into battle. And there's only certain thing, you know, marginal things that the army can do to try and hold itself together and overcome those inequalities once it starts fighting. Great. Just a quick follow-up on that. There are multiple times in the book where you um, to, are very careful to distinguish between inequality and diversity, right? So I wondered if you could just very briefly tell us what the distinction is there. Yeah, that's a great point. So diversity for me is really the number of ethnic groups that you would have in a particular military. And what's interesting about some of the data we collected, we tend to think in our theories that armies are homogenous, right? That they're just sort of, they're full of soldiers and the soldiers go off and, and fight. Once we went back and started calculating the number of ethnic groups in an army, we, we found out two really interesting things. One, there's almost never been a mono-ethnic army that's fought since 1800. Almost every single army has been mixed of a variety of different groups. Secondly, the average number of ethnic groups in an army is five, which means that almost every army has to reconcile diverse diversity within its ranks. So diversity is really the, the number of groups that you have inside your army. Inequality is how the state is treating those groups. It's their status or their position within the broader political community. And those two pieces we need uh, together to try and explain how that army is going to perform. It's a really important distinction. Um, so now I'm wondering if you could just take us through um, the argument for how inequality shapes battlefield performance. Sure. So on its surface, it's actually really quite a, a simple argument. The notion here is that think of inequality as like a poison that gets inside your army and it starts sort of eroding your battlefield performance even before you get onto the battlefield itself. So what's inequality doing? Um, it does a number of different things to your army. One, as you become more unequal, you throw away the advantages of diversity. So you don't get the, it's a sort of what we call the diversity bonus. That is to say, you don't have a variety of different perspectives to problem solving. Combat is one of the hardest sort of problems to solve, right? You are under fire, under immense time pressures. It's lethal. You need a variety of, of different approaches to problem solving. If you're throwing away the diversity in your army and the diversity of perspectives, 
by not allowing, say, those soldiers from certain groups to be officers or not having their voices heard, you throw away problem-solving advantages and you create vulnerabilities in your military. So that's one. Two, because the inequality in this story breaks down along ethnic lines, you sow seeds of mistrust and, and confusion between the different ethnic groups in your army. So they're not going to want to trust each other. They're not going to trust each other. They're not going to share information with each other. So information is going to get stovepiped. It's going to flow more slowly, right? So you're going to have coordination difficulties across the ethnic groups, particularly if the officers are from the favored group and the rank and file are not. There's going to be a huge issue of trust in there. And as that trust breaks down, it becomes a lot harder to be flexible on the battlefield, to adopt more advanced tactics and things like that. Then, Inequality also matters because while it breaks down bonds across groups, it strengthens them within the groups. So prior exposure to repression or discrimination creates these strong bonds within ethnic groups. What you're essentially doing is creating the capacity for these groups to challenge the military authorities. So if they get onto the battlefield and they see an opportunity to flee, they're going to take it and they're going to be organized and and able to do that. And so what we see often, and you look at the, both the historical cases and the sort of large end regression, that it's not just that desertion happens, it's, it's desertion in large groups. And it's typically the most repressed or, or marginalized groups that are the ones breaking free. They're doing that because that prior experience of repression has built strong bonds within these groups that being inside the military probably just ramps up. So as the state tries to impose its vision on them, they're saying, look, I'm not a member of the society. You've treated my group poorly. Why, am I, why, why would I trust you? And I'm going to trust my fellow co-ethnics. That's who I'm going to trust. And so when, when it hits the fan in the battlefield and there's an opportunity to break and run, these groups will, and then they're organized and capable of doing that. And then finally, the thing, last thing that inequality does, sort of most obviously, it generates grievances among these groups. So it saps your combat motivation. People are unwilling to fight and die for a, a state that has treated their, their particular ethnic group uh, poorly, historically, uh, maybe repressing their families, or, or, or they may have direct exposure to repression. It just creates grievances. So at the end of the day, inequality throws away the diversity bonus, and then it generates grievances and capacity for action inside your own army. So it's sort of setting up the seeds of failure even before you get onto the battlefield. So um, as part of your theoretical framework, you also discuss the various um, you know, strategies that military leadership might ta- might uh, adopt in order to try to manage right these various problems, um, and you discuss the ways that you know th- these kind of uh, you know th- these things they might try to do in order to manage these issues might actually wind up um, creating feedback loops, right? That that uh, that may sort of force a, a, a you call it a trade off between cohesion and combat power. Uh, so I was wondering if you could uh, talk a little bit about that. Yeah, this is one of my favorite parts of the book, and uh, you know, it could have easily probably been a book on itself, but you know, the editors are like, hey, 500 pages is enough, <laughs> cut it down. Uh, but it's not – so this is not a story of surprise. So the military commanders sort of get on the battlefield and they're like, whoa, what happened? Why is my army breaking on me? Where did these grievances come from? They know that they're there. They, they may m- misread the magnitude of them. But many times these armies believe that they can integrate marginalized or repressed groups because they think they can control them. So they build systems of control and and management within the military that's designed to hold these soldiers in place. 
and they can do things like um, set up where these uh, units serve. They can perhaps put a more reliable unit next to them on the battlefield so that they can't escape or they can close down escape routes. Sometimes they'll try and ethnically mix the units to try and break down those bonds of cohesion that are within the ethnic groups. Um, sometimes they will, you know, on a more extreme end, they will begin to threaten their families if they don't engage in, in appropriate military behavior. But what starts happening is as the military is trying to hold itself together, right, it's beginning to turn away from combat power and fighting the enemy and towards fighting itself. And, and so really what I think we miss in our theories is we always treat combat as strategic interaction between two armies. And, and it is, and it's, that's true. But there's also strategic interaction happening within your own army that we miss. We sort of black box. And so as you get more unequal, as you get more, um, uh, you know, more inequality inside your army, you have to be increasingly stringent in your measures to hold your army in place. So you're more worried about cohesion than combat power. So for lots of armies on that higher end of it, the big challenge is not how to, to fight your enemy. It's how to hold your army together on the battlefield. And so as you know, and you turn the screws, right? So as you use more repression against your own soldiers, those soldiers have more grievances. They're going to be increasingly likely to try and escape. So you need to use more coercion. So this feedback is looping. So you're fighting the enemy and then you're also fighting your own soldiers in some ways to try and hold them in place. It's as as I said earlier, it's it's really such a sophisticated argument. Um, but what's truly impressive about the book is that you know it doesn't stop there. There's this very impressive data collection effort. Uh, there are methodological contributions that I really want our listeners to to hear about. So um, the book has um, a theory building natural experiment. It has rigorous statistical analysis. It has process tracing in three paired case comparisons and micro level evidence on within army variation. Um, so there are so many different directions I think we could go in talking about the empirics, but how about we begin uh, with Project Mars? Um, can you tell us about you know this project uh, and how you put it together? Yeah, absolutely. So this is in some ways the, the heart of the, the book because it's not only the quantitative chapter, but also how I chose the qualitative cases to, to do the more in-depth process tracing. And I should say at the outset that this would absolutely not have been possible without all of the many coders, 134 uh, who worked on the project. And uh, some people you know, stayed for a little bit. Some people stayed for years on the project. Some people have gone on to do their own PhDs and things like that. It absolutely would not have been possible uh, to do any of this work without their, their tremendous efforts. And one of the things that the book and Project Mars in particular was committed to doing was expanding our coverage of non-Western cases. Um, and, and this is something I really, really wanted to make a, a, a key feature of the book, I was tired of reading military effectiveness books that were on the same set of Western cases. And that literature is dominated by, you know, World War One and World War Two and the American experience, um, among others. And, and that's about it. And so Project Mars, when we said we need to get outside of this normal kind of what we consider normal cases and begin to get a truly global history. So we recruited undergraduates, mostly undergraduates, with um, language skills so we could look in Chinese and in Persian and French and Spanish and begin to build out a more um, comprehensive data set. So we, you know, and ironically, when I sat down to, to think about how to do this book, I wrote on a piece of paper, I said, basically, one year for theory, one year for data collection, one year for write-up, and I'm done. Uh, the book the, the, didn't work out like that. Uh, the data collecting took about seven years. Um, but what we did is we expanded out our coverage of belligerence 
and of wars, and then all of these battlefield performance metrics, and then the inequality index, which we can quantitatively test this. And, um, and that's really the heart of Project Mars. So it's, um, it's a little over 250 wars from 1800 till now. Uh, greatly improved coverage of places like Africa, Central Asia, South America, places that we didn't have good coverage in existing data sets. Um, the wars had just been largely ignored or, or sort of shunted into other data sets we never use. So it brought everything all into one kind of comprehensive data set to begin to build out the, this global history. It's such a, I mean, such a massive effort that I think has really, really paid off uh, here. Um, I wanted to ask you also related to Project Mars, um, you know, it sounds like a very, um, you know, very careful kind of data collection. And you discuss in the book how you had, um, I think, two teams um, of coders. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So this is one of the things that we tried as an innovation where we had a blue team whose initial job was to go through and begin to fill in the data cells. So how many soldiers were in this army? What, are their, what was the ethnic composition? Was there desertion? All that kind of stuff. And then we subjected the data set for each of the variables we coded uh, to a random audit where we would pull a certain number of observations out and then have a red team go through it and critique the blue team's coding. So we would have basically a second pass through the data set. And then discrepancies, we would set, uh, we would sit the blue and the red teams down. We called it our purple meetings. And in the purple meetings, we would essentially, I know these are very sophisticated social science terms here, but in our purple meetings, we would sit down and say, okay, where do we think the historical judgment is best grounded and in which way we go? And then for almost all the variables, we actually have a coder's assessment. So how, how reliable do we think these findings are? And this is one of the huge challenges. You know, once you go into the 19th century, right, the data set starts in 1800. Once you get into the 19th century, the sources become a little more suspect. Um, in many of the cases, which kind of an interesting um, finding from the book that got excised from the book just for the length, but uh, many of the really, really high inequality belligerents get crushed on the battlefield and the state gets destroyed. <coughs> and that essentially means we lose a lot of the historical record. So we're forced to rely on the occupier or the colonial powers recollections of that or, or records of that. And so, you know, in those instances, we want to be careful and say, well, we're, this is um, not as airtight necessarily as other cases made in the 20th century and things like that, um, which is partly why in the book we test the 19th century and then the 20th century to see if the findings hold across them, um, just to make sure you know we, we were sort of being do, doing a due diligence with the data set and um, and we're, we're following that now as with the extension to the data set we're, we're following that still that red blue team kind of model. That's a, just a really fantastic innovation. Um, so, uh, you know, you use this this data for statistical tests, of course, but as you mentioned, uh, you also used it for case selection. So can you tell us a little bit about the case selection process? Yeah, so this is, this is one of the things where I just took, I think, uh, kind of a big risk. So a lot of the times when we do these books, you never know why the cases are chosen or there's some kind of argument that says, well, they're important cases or things like that. I really wanted to do um, representative cases. I really wanted to kind of choose ones that were illustrative of a broader process and that were typically non-Western. So we could kind of get outside that canon. And so what we did is um, built a very small software program in R and um, that basically chose the cases for me. <laughs> so what it would do, it, was, it would find two belligerents 
that were very, very similar on lots of different dimensions from Project Mars. So the strength of the army or how far it was fighting from home or its um, religious composition or all these kinds of things. It would find these pairs for me. And then when it found a, a pair, it would randomly choose sets inside that. So what's happening in there, and then and then I would write the cases. What's happening in there is essentially I am not allowed to cherry pick the cases that fit my argument, because the software is essentially doing it for me. And it's and the the advantage of that is it's replicable. I could give that code to somebody else and say, okay, this is how I chose them. You can use different criteria, and you can get different pairings. But this is how I did it. Uh, and it tied my hands, so I also didn't get to like cherry pick the ones that I was most interested. So like when I went to write this book, Morocco and Kokand, which is one of the paired comparisons, was not for, for, foremost in my mind about what I'm going to be writing about. Um, but, and the other thing is that I, I found kind of neat is um, I, I think most of my work has been quantitative uh, to date, but I have language skills, <laughs> and the chapters actually allow me to to use the language skills. And um, and sort of bring in some non some non English language materials to help round out those cases. And in fact, for the like Kokand, it's almost solely based on non English. And I thought that was that was a fun thing for me to do. Um, so yes, there's a scientific principle behind the case selection, but also I, I got to flex the language skills a little bit. So I'll just mention for for listeners that you know even if you're not an international security person like me, right? I'm not an uh, an international security scholar. Uh, you will really find these chapters so beautifully written that you will enjoy kind of re- reading through oh, thank them. Thank you. Um, so the first uh, empirical chapter in the book de- deals with the Mahdi state, um, which you describe as a natural experiment. Can you describe sort of what makes it a natural experiment and tell us about the analysis in that case? Yeah. So this was the, a case chosen really to begin to help generate hypotheses about how inequality might matter. And what we really wanted historically is a case where a country goes from being really inclusive in its army and then changes overnight and becomes wildly um, exclusionary, wildly violent towards its own army uh, and own populations. Uh, And there aren't that many that do that for obvious reasons, but um, the Mahdi state is one. And so what we do is um, in 1885 or 1881, excuse me, when the Mahdi begins this sort of liberation of what we would now call Sudan, more or less, and trying to overthrow the Egyptian and then really the Turkish um, powers, he constructs this amazingly inclusive army, takes people from wherever he didn't care of their tribe or ethnic affiliation or religious affiliation necessarily. It was a nationalist, really, kind of an army, was barely armed. So they're, they're pushing against this Egyptian, for them, powerhouse, and, um, and then the British will come to back the Egyptians. And uh, they're basically scooping up weapons off the battlefield and constructing an army on a fly, but along very inclusionary principles. And they shocked the world. They managed to not only drive out the Egyptians, but drive out the British who are backing the Egyptians in 1885. And so um, the Mahdi takes power. He begins to consolidate over his... his um, his political system, it's a very inclusionary system at this point. And then he dies, just which is not supposed to happen to the Mahdi. And, and so this is a great shock on many levels. Uh, but he dies of, uh, of typhus. And, uh, you know, there, there's this wonderful scene, I guess not for him, but historically where his advisors are all 
huddled around, not sure what to do because this isn't supposed to happen. And they're trying homemade remedies to try and deal with, with the typhus, including, you know, squirting urine into his eyeballs as a way of trying to help him along. Uh, and, and it doesn't work. He dies. And his successor is a bit of a scramble. And his successor uh, arises, the Khalifa, or literally the successor, comes and takes power. And decides he's going to rule very different. He's going to rule through ethnocratic means. He's going to rule through his his narrow tribe, and begins uh, basically purging the military of some what he thinks unreliable groups. But then building a coercive apparatus to hold down the rest, and then begins starvation and near genocidal levels of violence towards other groups. He doesn't kick everybody out of the army. He he kicks a few groups, but most of the groups are still there from the first iteration but now they're violently repressed and it, the on, in terms of the index it goes from being like almost a zero to about a 0.65 or 0.7 on that scale which is wildly wildly um, uh, unequal army and then he finds himself in battle again with the British and this time unlike the first time his army is absolutely decimated. It's one of the, at Omdurman, this is one of the most shocking kind of loss exchange ratios recorded in, in history. His army is wiped out. He barely survives. He'll be tracked down a year later and killed by the British on his prayer mat. Uh, and the regime, not only does he die, his regime falls and the and the, the Mahdi state dies with him. So in the span of about 12 years, you go from a highly inclusive, surprisingly effective army to being the exact opposite on the same terrain against the same adversaries with broadly the same technology. And that natural experiment there is that pivot between the, the highly inclusive to the highly uh, exclusionary or highly uh, unequal and nothing else or, or very little is changing. So holding everything else constant and you can just there see what happens when the inequality kind of get ramped up all the way to the top part of the index. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. And so what do you, and as you know, right, it's this great support for your argument, right, that it really does show this very kind of clear link between military inequality and battlefield performance. But as you note in the book, this um, chapter also plays sort of an important role in um, maybe elaborating uh, some uh, parts of the theory and setting the stage for subsequent chapters as well, right? Yeah, there's a methodological component to it as well, where... Uh, the matching done from Project Mars is only so good as the things we can track. But we know lots of things are not easily measured quantitatively. So what part of what, as I process trace through the, uh, this particular case, it began to shed light on a variety of other things where we didn't have quantitative data, but that were guiding me to look for in the other cases that we would go and do. So that was more of a, when we begin to test rather than sort of just do this initial probe things that I should be looking for that are either not captured by our existing theories or are contextually important factors that I wanted to be, to make sure I was aware of. And that could be things like, you know, how good were the weapons that they were using or what kind of civil military relations did 
the ruler have or uh, you know just just a variety of these other i think there's about 20 of these different covariates that we we're looking at and it gave me a, a signpost to begin to look for sort of non-quantitative indicators that i could nonetheless have as a grid so that I, when i went to the other cases i would know to look for them because they seem to be important in this particular case the other thing i would say is um the there's a reliance in some ways on these quantitative indicators. So your loss exchange ratio and, and, you know, desertion rates and defection rates, and that's all important. But one of the other things that's happening, which is impossible to capture quantitatively, but it's how your tactics and operational art is adjusting. Once you you have this highly unequal army, a highly divided army. And you can see that in, uh, in the, the shift from the Maidea to the Khalifa, you know, he's doing things, the Khalifa is doing things like branding, his own soldiers to prevent their desertion. So he created a specialized detachment that would sit there from his own ethnic group that would sit inside the army. And if his soldiers began to retreat, they would shoot them to prevent those coercive soldiers, what we call blocking detachments from fleeing. He branded them so that they had no possibility of escape because if they tried to flee off the battlefield and went to the villages, they would see it. It was a, a it looked like a J on their hands, essentially, and they couldn't hide the the tattoo or the branding. And so he's doing all these incredibly, from a military point of view, <laughs> suboptimal, if not irrational things, but he's trying to hold that army in place. And so that gave me these contextual clues when I went to do the other cases to look and say, how are they treating their soldiers? What kinds of tactics do they trust their soldiers to do? What kinds of operations do they say, you know what, we actually can't do that because if we try this, our soldiers are just going to bail out on us. Um, or things like, you know, we, we better start shooting a few of our own soldiers because otherwise they're going to flee. And so we need to kind of encourage the others to keep fighting. So there's this evolution as the conflict goes on. And you can see it in both these, these initial cases of things they're trying on the battlefield and then options that are progressively uh, winnowed away from the menu as the inequality gets higher. And so these sort of contextual or, you know, qualitative indicators become really, really important for the other, um, the other cases. Fantastic. So, um, you know, the, the natural experiment, this sort of comparison of, uh, the Mahdi's army with the Khalifa's army, uh, that's followed with by very compelling, uh, statistical tests. And then later on in the book, you go through three, paired case comparisons that cover, you know, different regions and different time periods. There's so much detail in these chapters that I wish uh, we had time to go into. Um, But I'm going to ask you to sort of, you know, summarize, you know, what are these cases and what do we learn from them? Yeah, great. Yeah, so exactly. We, we could be here for another hour at least <laughs> with these cases. There's a, there's a lot going on. So what I wanted to do was have um, three paired com- comparisons, one from sort of the mid-19th century, one from the eve of the modern era, which is roughly around World War One, and then one uh, a paired comparison from more contemporary set. So the 19th century is um, the the little known cases of Kokand, which is a Central Asian, uh, essentially an empire that the Russians would, would conquer and destroy, paired with the Sultanate of Morocco, uh, and this is in the the late 1850s and early 60s. Then the next pair of comparison is sort of on the eve of the modern era of war, which it compares the Ottoman um, Turks in Libya uh, in 1911, their war in 1911, uh, comparing with the Austro-Hungarian Empire in the Eastern Front of World War One. So that's a, that's a very high sort of, um, it's not necessarily a classic case because we always look at World War One on the Western Front, but um, at least it's, it's very big, very sprawling kind of a conflict. And then the modern cases are um, Ethiopia, uh, fighting against Eritrea 
1998 to 2000, and then the uh, so-called Africa's First World War in the DRC in 1998 to 2000, which brings in a civil war case uh, into the the range of uh, of cases here, and so um, and so we again we we see the the same kind of patterns across the same grid is dropped down on each of the pairs, and in each case we trace through how the inequality affected the the performance of the armies. And in each of these instances across the pairs, we see as the army becomes increasingly divided, as the inequality score gets higher, we see the same pathologies emerging. Desertion becomes more rampant, defection becomes more more, um, sort of widespread, loss exchange ratios fall down, the use of violence against your own soldiers ramps up, um, and gets incredibly violent in some of these instances, the use of violence against their own soldiers just to try and hold them in place. Um, and their tactics become increasingly rigid. So you see them doing things like in the Austro-Hungarian case, just mass wave assaults with certain soldiers who were viewed as less than full citizens. So the Slavic soldiers, for example, being pushed into near suicidal frontal offensives because their casualties meant less than the others. Same thing in Kokand, where you had certain um, tribes and, and ethnic groups being seen as outsiders by the regime, and they just pushed them into the Russians, um, staggeringly high loss exchange ratios. And the idea here is just to show that inequality seems to matter across big in big armies and little armies and big wars and little wars and all around the world. So we go from North Africa to Central Asia into Europe itself, uh, and and it seems to be picking up consistent effects across all of these different time periods and all of these different um, uh, really really different <laughs> sets of armies. And then in each of the cases, they kind of have their strengths and weaknesses in terms of historiography and, and availability of sources. Um, you know, Kokan, for example, has a wonderful oral tradition that has somewhat been written down, but we don't hear much about the soldiers because they were either illiterate or the records were destroyed. Uh, and so we, the army's a little uh, quieter in some sense. But in the Austro-Hungarian side, we have lots and lots of soldier testimonies. And, uh, and we can actually get firsthand sort of accounts of what it was like to be these soldiers and the nature of their grievances and the nature of how they were being used uh, on the battlefield. And so each, each case has kind of got its own evidentiary base, its own strengths and weaknesses. And the idea is across all of them that we can, can use the weaknesses and the strengths against each other to show this kind of consistent pattern of, um, of inequality harming battlefield performance. Um, it's just really incredible work, I think, especially because, you know, the, the cases were, as, as you know, kind of, uh, randomly selected, right? You didn't have the luxury of selecting cases that you knew were going to have a lot of sources for you to draw on, right? And so there's this, you know, sort of incredible, again, like data collection effort associated with doing the, the research for these cases. Um, so after that, you kind of zoom in um, uh, uh, to try to gather sort of micro level uh, evidence um, and trying to think about within army variation. Can you tell us a, uh, a bit about what your findings are there? Yeah, absolutely. So and so this case involves looking at uh, four rifle divisions on the Eastern Front in the Soviet Army in 1941. And, um, and, and in some ways, this is, I shouldn't all the chapters are my favorite, but this is really like my favorite one. I, I love to do this one uh, because we could take uh, declassified personnel records that the Russian government has made publicly available, declassified divisional logs, maps, and then reconstruct a divisional history 
of these different rifle divisions uh, in 1941 and trace out the level of inequality down to the level of the rifle division, which is about 12 to 14,000 soldiers. So we can kind of get pretty fine grain. And what the chapter is trying to do is answer this criticism that others like my good friend, Caitlin Talmadge and her wonderful book have made that <clears throat> we shouldn't be looking at big structural explanations for military effectiveness because they change too slow to account for fast moving things on the battlefield and they don't render specific predictions. So if you have a country that's a democracy, but its army performs variable, like, well, how can democracy be accounting for variation in that army? Here, what I wanted to show is that you can take this inequality index and apply it to units, rifle divisions or whatever you want and render specific predictions. So in each of these cases, um, it's a, it's really a story of how, um, how the, the individual level inequality is uh, manifesting itself on the battlefields uh, as we go through, um, in, you know, in the anticipation of the German attack. And so just to give you like 30 seconds, uh, there's these two rifle divisions. I, I'm particularly uh, fond of the, the 38th and the, the 108th. And there's no reason necessarily to know, to know them. They're not famous or anything like that. But they're basically in 1941, says October 1941, the frost has come in. The Germans are about to launch their Operation Typhoon and push the Soviets back towards Moscow. These two units, they're understaffed. They're both 10,000. 11,000 soldiers each. They have the same equipment. They're in the same army, the same, same headquarters. They're all sort of tucked in. They're side by side on the battle space. They're about three or four kilometers apart. So they're, they're very, very similar. They're hit at exactly the same time when the Germans come over. And then begins the, the sort of the, the battle. The, um, the 108th manages a two-week fighting retreat. It's cut off from headquarters, but it falls back. It's fighting. It's trying to push the Germans back. And it emerges in the Soviet, the new Soviet rear area around near Moscow about two weeks later. It's got about a third of its soldiers left. So pretty chewed up, but it had been fighting back. The Soviets, two days later, put it right back on the front line and say, okay, you're now on the front defenses. Here we go. You're a unit again. The 38th gets hit immediately at the same time and disintegrates. Soldiers flee. They're, they're, they, they completely lose control of where the unit is. In fact, the Soviet high command is actually sending an aircraft over to look down and find the rifle division. There's radio silence. They can't find it. And um, the last known sighting is on basically October 7th. So it makes it about six days as a core group. And then the last known sighting is just south of Vyazma. And, um, and that's it. And there's no, more, there's no more record of it. Until about two weeks later, when the colonel who was uh, leading the, the commanding the rifle division emerges in the rear area with a few few of his soldiers, and the Soviets say, basically, what the hell happened? Like, wh where's your unit? He says, it's gone. It fled. They, they, they deserted on me. They defected. They they switched over the German sides. They disappeared. I couldn't I couldn't do anything. How would I? How could I have known? And the Soviet high command says, you should have known. You knew who your soldiers were. So they put them on trial and then they execute them. And the division is struck from the roster of the official rifle divisions. It's just like it doesn't, never even existed, so completely off the roster. So what's the difference between the two? It's the inequality. So the, the 108th was a more or less majority Russian unit with some Belarusians and Ukrainians. The Belarusians and Ukrainians mostly deserted out of the unit, but the Russian corps kind of kept together and fought. The, uh, the 38th was 90% drawn from the Northern Caucasus. 
And if you know Soviet history, the Northern Caucasus had been subject to an absolutely brutal counterinsurgency campaign, a campaign of food blockades, forced collectivization, and electrification in this area, and had been all the way up until the war in, in many ways. And so this population hated Stalin, hated the regime, and was looking for any opportunity to flee. And they did. And so that unit just essentially disappeared. So everything else is the same soldiers, number, you know, the, the quality of their weapons, the number of weapons, everything but that inequality. And so that's one of the two comparisons. And the idea there is we can see it in the personal logs, the records, that we can have a very specific prediction of the theory down to quite small units. So it'd be useful, um, not just in terms of big macro level, army level indicators, but, but within armies as well. It's fantastic. Um, there, and I think there's so much more that could be said about, you know, the empirics in the book, you know, even in the conclusion, you don't let yourself off the hook. We get another kind of out of sample case um, right. that I wish we had time to talk about as well. Um, but what I wanted to ask you about now is, you know, the book obviously makes all of these sort of theoretical, methodological, empirical contributions, but it's also very policy relevant. Um, so what would you say are the policy implications of the book? Yeah, so so this is a great question, and it's a hot button issue now because uh, the U.S., in particular, the U.S. military, is now undergoing this diversity and inclusion sort of initiative that's receiving a considerable amount of pushback, both within the ranks, but also by certain politicians in the United States who who don't think woke, so-called woke militaries fight well, and and in fact, the evidence suggests the opposite, that you want a woke military, they tend to be more lethal. Um, and so there's policy implications for the United States. And then I think there's policy implications for, for more generally for the outside world. And on the U.S. side, the U.S. military has done a good job of um, making its institutions diverse. In some ways, the, the army is more diverse than the United States population and in many ways who comes into the army. Um, but it has fallen down pretty considerably on the inclusion side. So non-white soldiers are a very small percentage of the officer corps. The general officers are all white men for the most part. Um, there are enormous structural barriers to promotion. There's enormous structural barriers to retention. Uh, and, and this is just on race and equality. We are also experiencing now uh, gender integration right, and, and sexual orientation as other potential forms of inequality. So the military is wrestling with all of these things. I think it's done the easy thing in saying we're diverse. It has not done the hard thing which is looking inside and saying, how do we promote inequality? Uh, how do we promote inclusion? Uh, and how do we uh, sort of limit the inequalities at the promotion ranks, at the retention ranks, in terms of which services people can go to? How do we harness the, the advantages of diversity? There isn't that conversation yet. And that's where it needs to go next, is, is what do you do now that you have this diverse force? And I think partly this is where scholars can help a lot. There aren't a lot of great studies yet on the merits of diversity inside the military. So when we look for the advantages of diversity, most of that literature is in Fortune 500 companies. And, and that's great, but that's not necessarily a close analog to what the military does. So as scholars, there needs to be a lot more research on the benefits of diversity to help overcome some of these obstacles. I think on the sort of broader scope, one of the things we, we talk a lot now about net assessment and how to you sort of look at adversary forces and see you know, how well they're going to fight and things like that. That still remains a bean counting exercise. We count number of soldiers. We count number of ships. Look at all the arguments about China right now. For example, we count planes and ships and expenditures. We don't talk anything about inequality, right? So there's no consistent use of inequality or ethnic indicators when we handicap other armies. 
China is a particularly fascinating one, has surging levels of economic inequality and social inequality in that, in that country. Right? That may affect its ability to fight, but that is completely absent from the discussions. So one of the things I would say is we need to fold in inequality into our measures of net assessment, or we're going to miss key drivers of battlefield performance kind of going forward. Uh, we're still in an era where there are soldiers on the battlefield. They're not replaced by Terminator just yet. So we need to know what the ethnic composition is. And, and we don't do that right now. And I think there's an enormous blind spot when we look at China or we look at India or we look, you know, and we don't have to look very far. We were shocked when the Afghan army fell apart. We were shocked when the Iraqi army fell apart against ISIS. We should not have been shocked. Right? If we have been looking inside and looking at the tribal and ethnic structures or in Iraq, the sectarian structures, this would have been a first order expectation that these armies would have deserted. But we don't build those measures into our theories or into our net assessment. And so we're continually being surprised. And I worry we're going to be surprised by China and India and these other countries as we look outside kind of going forward. Obviously, a very important uh, set of implications there. Um, so, you know, now we listeners should know that we've really only kind of skimmed the surface of the, of the very rich content uh, that's in the book. Um, but, you know, Jay, we've taken up a lot of your time. Uh, so just one final question. Uh, now that this book is out, you know, what are you working on now? Yeah, so it's a great question. This is this is the the what do you do next question, and it's a hard one. But um, so I'm doing two things. One, uh, I'm going back to Afghanistan, actually, and back to my my field um, sort of field experience uh, and my roots there. And I'm writing a book now on the lessons learned from Afghanistan. So I'm trying to bridge on my my 12 trips there and the research I've done there and the research of all wonderful scholars and trying to bring that to light for a public audience to say, we actually learned a lot uh, and we should know what these lessons are before we turn away and forget them. Um, The the second thing I'm doing is actually trying to to work and deepen this inequality research agenda. Um, you know, we're doing some experiments now with American special forces to see how diversity affects their, um, their team, uh, performance, uh, looking at now how inequality affects, um, regime survival. For example, it turns out that, uh, if you're trying to fight with an army that's highly divided, it's not only bad for your army, it's bad for your rulers too. And a lot of rulers don't make it out of the war because of the, the way their armies fragment on them. Um, and, and I really, for me, I think the book would be a success if other people, started bringing in other inequalities and we began to think about how inequalities plural are interacting with each other class gender um you know race and ethnicity ideological polarization right all of these kind of inequalities i think are going to interact i think there's a wonderful research program in there that that lots and lots of scholars could could help fill in and I, I think it will be successful if you look in five or 10 years now, and it's standard in our regressions to put an inequality into, you know, values in, multiple ones, and that in our qualitative cases, we're, we're looking for inequalities. I think there's just a huge research program that, that could unfold on there. And so I'm trying to, um, I'm trying to do my part and, 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 and you know, show people there's, there's, there's a big thing here um, to, to try and chase. That sounds wonderful. Um, well, Jay, I really enjoyed our conversation. and Thank you so much for being on the show today. I I did too. And thank you very much for the interest in the book. The book is Jason Lyles, Divided Armies, Inequality and Battlefield Performance in Modern War, published by Princeton University Press in 2020. Thank you for listening.